Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in. You are again listening to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the UK Geek Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror Podcast, episode 511, recorded on Monday the 20th of November 2023 at 23.58.05. Yes, just got in before midnight to start the show. I'm not quite ready yet. Tangled cables almost made me even later. Uh, I need to go away for a moment and come back, and then I'll be ready. I'm even a bit out of breath. Oh, and today I am again recording on the Shure SM58 microphone. Okay, one second and I'll be back. Alright, I'm back. Still out of breath, even more out of breath now. Had to go and get my standing stick. I'm still in my post-Halloween catch-up mode. Though the revisits will return shortly, so if you're looking forward to hearing me talk about classic Doctor Who or Hammer House of Horror, those will return soon. But doing those shows meant that I got a bit behind with all the rest of the geek that I wanted to talk about. And in fact, even as we speak, the list of stuff I should have talked about isn't completely done. There's one or two other things to add. But we'll do that in a future show because I just can't be bothered to (laughs) write any more show notes or make this episode any longer than it already is. It's going to be quite a long show. The reason this wasn't recorded yesterday, as I said it would be, and then I did make the excuse on Twitter that we would be late, so hopefully listeners do know that. But the reason for that lateness was due to extreme tiredness, which you can probably hear still in my voice from my latest walk in London on Saturday, which we'll talk about a bit later. Though it does mean that shortly before recording this, I had the chance to watch the Doctor Who Children in Need special for 2023. That was broadcast on the 17th, but it completely passed me by and then I saw it in iPlayer, I thought I'd watch it. It was quite short. I needed something to perk me up a bit, and it did that. The other thing I noticed about the Hooniverse, and we will be talking about the Hooniverse. Oh God, every time I say that, eyes roll up in my head. <laughs> yeah, we'll be talking about that. Uh, but no, the other thing that I noticed, and this isn't in the show notes, is you can't add the entire Hooniverse to your list of favourites in iPlayer, and that's really annoying. If you want to do that, you have to add each individual thing one at a time. How silly is that? Okay. What else? Before we launch this rocket, I've got some follow-up. I said a very absurd thing in 5.10, the last episode, And that was, I agonisingly explained why I'm not part of any particular musical genre fandom. I didn't mention the most glaring reason, and that's age. Yes, I'm no longer part of youth culture. And also, yes, there are ageing punks. They do exist. Though the majority of us drift into the middle ground. To be completely honest, for me that isn't because of maturity, but because getting into some of those tight clothes would do me a mischief. I think that if I was still in shape, I 
maybe still wearing studs and leather and stuff like that. Even though it is a disgraceful and inappropriate look for my age. But the main reason is I just don't fit that well into those type of clothes anymore. But it's not just the look. Attitudes change. Though it's commonly thought, and this is a trope, that the older reactionary, they hearken back to the good old days. Well, let me tell you, that's not completely true. For me, the opposite has happened. So, age isn't without its benefits. And some of us become less close-minded. I love being that way. I remember back when Brexit was happening and people were blaming old people for voting to leave the EU. There was a group of old people campaigning to remain locally. I remember that. Perhaps that was a reaction from the hostility some older people were feeling. And they were thinking to themselves, well, look, it's not all old people, it's some old people. And yeah, I'm not actually old old, but you know what I mean. We don't all become miserable old gets. Well, you know what, I'm going to backtrack on that. I think I have become a miserable old git, but more in a Meldrew way than an Alf Garnet way. And yeah, look, the point is, I feel that I have become more liberal the older I've got. So yeah, not all aging is terrible. And my compliments to my fellow old wizards out there in the ether. Okay, let us start straight into the science fiction, fantasy and horror this week. I'll cover the off-topic after that, because there is only one off-topic subject to talk about, and that's me walking around London. As we started off with a follow-up, let's start off with another follow-up, and that is regarding The Flash, which I reviewed in... 510, the last episode. My review was pathetic. It was way too short. It was only three lines long. To recap, I said, the main character is great, as is Keaton's Batman, the effects, the dialogue, but the story is a forgettable time travel paradox that's been done to death. What I should have added is what it's actually about. That would have helped in a review. And what it was about was that The Flash was attempting to extricate his father from the frame for the brutal murder of his mother. In the end, it only half works out. I'm not going to spoil it any further. That's as much as you really need to know. I will also add that Miller does The Flash very well. He is funny, charming, hyperactive, as he always was at the cinema, despite his fairly obnoxious problems in his personal life. But as The Flash is pretty good, the conceit used for clearing his father's name was clever. Apart from those few positives, I thought the film's plot was forgettable. The film did poorly. I looked this up. Not in great detail, but I know it didn't do well. And when you combine its performance with Miller's issues, it is incredible to me that Warner Brothers still have him in the running for the role for the foreseeable future. I thought they would just axe that entire timeline of Miller playing the Flash, but no. Warner Brothers. <laughs> Yet another interesting choice, despite this film's poor performance. 
Next, we're going to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I have finally seen and I am finally ready to talk about, but before that, I need to take another break. Back in a second. Okay, I'm back. Had a little rest and had to wait for some noise to abate, as usual. I'm now ready to talk about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Yeah, finally saw that. This is Paramount Pictures' 2023 latest sequel to the Mission Impossible series, produced by and starring Tom Cruise. I saw this a few weeks ago. I did make some notes at the time. <laughs> then I probably forgot about it in the Mad Shuffle to organise that Halloween Hammer House of Horror revisit. That's why it took me so long. Okay, let me just tell you what it's all about. In the seventh film of the franchise, a high-tech Russian submarine is tricked into blowing itself up by its own AI. Ethan Hunt goes hunting for the two-piece AI activation key, meeting up with Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson, in this really big shootout in the desert, where miraculously... Ethan isn't hurt. Later, he assembles the old team of Luther, the hacker, played by Ving Rhames, Benji, played by Simon Pegg, and a new recruit, a crook that he crosses path with called Grace, who was trying to sell part of the key. Everyone wants this key for its power control the AI, but Hunt's plan is to track it down and use it to gain access to the AI's source code in order to kill it. Ah, crap, I left my speaker on. So sorry if there's a little bit of hiss for a few minutes. It's off now, though. Okay. Uh, I just left that on because I was watching The Sister again when I was having a break. You know, The Sister, the Neil Cross horror thriller that I watch so many times, mainly because of the performance of the creepy guy who plays Bob. Can't remember the name of the actor, but it's quite a performance. I'm straying. Back to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. So yeah, he wants to get to the source code to kill the artificial intelligence. There's a supervillain, who's also after the key, called Gabriel, played by Esai Morales. He is a chap who originally framed Ethan so that he had no other choice than to join the Impossible Mission Force. There's a sexy super assassin named Paris, played by the lovely Pom. Clementiev. There's a bloody moped. Okay, thanks a lot for that. Ah, back to the review. There is, of course, the MacGuffin hunt for the key. There's fighting and martial art action. Gunplay. There's an AI plot that anyone with a background in IT will laugh at. <laughs> and there's that amazing stunt that I first reported in 498. There's an 80s or 90s style club scene with nude dancers that is a Extremely tacky, and I'm going to use a word of the moment now. <laughs> I just said I was an aging chap who isn't scared to embrace newness. Here we go. It is cringe. 
The computer effects for the AI seem very William Gibson-ish, or Gibsonian. Benji's buckling up in fear of self-driving cars was as topical as the AI main plot, and very funny. And there's a car. There's a bloody car. Ah, okay, sorry. We're going to be interrupted constantly today for some reason. The White Widow was a really crap villain. Sub-villain, not the main villain. Though I think her incompetent psychopathy and that of her brother is an intentional part of the plot in the last couple of films. I think she's there for somewhat comedic value. Splitting such a simple movie into two parts is, artistically, without any merit whatsoever, it is just a purely economic decision. It is a money grab. The scene in which Tom Cruise motorcycles off a cliff, then base jumps, is spectacular. I've said that before. Though I thought it was unbelievable that so much hard work went into setting it up and repeatedly practicing such a very, very dangerous stunt, and yet the whole thing was over in a couple of seconds. All in all, so much talent in the cast and crew to bring us the usual Mission Impossible formula of an exotic Bond-like travelogue. Bond-like, though minus the imperialism, which is a good thing, beautiful women, an evil supervillain, a terrible superweapon wrapped in an incredibly simplistic zeitgeist-tapping AI plot that is utter nonsense. I'm not saying any of that is a bad thing, because it took me out of myself for a few enjoyable hours, which isn't to be sneered at, and then I forgot all about it. The only thing I would say that really annoyed me was the fact that this is a two-part film. I suppose they invested so much money in it, they thought, yeah, we've got to recoup some of that. And those are my thoughts on Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Ah, yeah, okay. Let's move on to... Let me just check that I've got this in the right order before I move on to anything. Yeah, that looks about right. Those were the only two films I wanted to talk about this week. Like I said at the top of the show, there is some more geek content that didn't make it into this episode, but there's very little that I wanted to talk about, but I just didn't have time, and then this episode would be even more unwieldy, but I'll talk about that next time. So, let us move on to television and Rick and Morty. Season 7, well, what more can I say? It's more of the same, very clever, funny, sordid comedy about Rick Sanchez, a mad scientist, and his long-suffering grandson. The more I watch Rick and Morty, the more I come to the very obvious conclusion that I should have come to a long time ago, and that is that Rick is an evil supervillain. The reason that didn't happen for so long, <laughs> despite even watching the pilot, which makes this very, very clear that that's what he is, when I say the pilot, I mean the prototype for Rick and Morty that came out before Rick and Morty. The tune that they used to sell it. He is a supervillain in that, but he is also very charismatic. And that charisma turned my eye. I'm a few episodes into Seven, and the violent, horrific, monstrous, obscene hilarity continues... Okay, that only merited a short review. Let's talk about something in greater detail, and that is The Fall of the House of Usher. I've now watched this. I have box-setted it over a couple of days. 
This is a Netflix mini-series by Mike Flanagan, who uses all of Poe's work, Edgar Allan Poe, to weave a story about a jaded family of opioid billionaires. Edgar Allan Poe's character names, sections of stories, and Easter eggs abound throughout this. Familiar characters are C. Auguste Dupin, Fortunato, Prospero, Hopfrog, and man, when I first saw Hopfrog, that gave me the willies. Stories like The Premature Burial, The Mask of the Red Death, The Black Cat, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, The Cast of Amontillado, and on and on and on, all feature to a greater or lesser extent in this adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher. So it's not really just about the fall of this house, this family, it's about all of... <laughs> Poe's stories rolled into one mini-series about something very different. We'll get on to that in a bit. The ensemble cast consists of Flanagan's regulars, including Rahul Coley, Samantha Sloyan, Tania Miller, Ruth Codd, uh, by the way, Ruth Codd, discovered on TikTok. So yeah, it can happen to any of us. No, it can't. That's Incredible luck, but yeah, Ruth Cod and others play members of the Usher family who are very, 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 very obviously <laughs> transparently based on the Sacklers, the opioid uh, big farmer family with a pinch of the Maxwells thrown in for extra spice, but mainly the Sacklers. The Usher clan leader is Roderick Usher, played by Bruce Greenwood. That is a chap who plays Christopher Pike in the Chris Pine Star Trek films. And his sister, Madeline Usher, played by Mary McDonnell. Who, by the way, in this, the older Mary McDonnell has a very, very different accent to her supposed twin brother, which I found a bit strange. And there's also their creepy lawyer, Arthur Pym, played by Mark Hamill. And Arthur Pym, another character from Poe. All these people, the Sacklers, sorry, no, the Ushers, weather attacks from all fronts, the government investigations, an informant inside the family, and some kind of ambiguous death or Satan-like figure called Werner, played by the delightful Carla Gugino. And by the way, Werner was an anagram of Raven. I read that post-watch. It isn't something that sprang out at me, so I won't pretend to be clever. And this humanoid, very beautiful female embodiment of evil? The Raven is seemingly bent on seeing the Usher family utterly destroyed in terrible and violent and gory ways. Uh, yeah, I should have mentioned uh, one of the stories that's also in this is The Pit and the Pendulum. Oh, used in this for, well, you can guess, quite a nasty demise and well-deserved demise of one of the ushers. I don't usually like Fast Loose based on adaptations of other work, except that Mike Flanagan is really good at doing them. Though it does look like he used Poe's work as a vehicle mostly to viciously attack Big Farmer and socially annihilate the real-life Sacklers whose civil trial is ongoing but probably aren't going to face any substantial legal consequences. There will be no ramifications. They're going to get away with this scot-free. Except in Mike Flanagan's work. 
There is a scene where the bodies literally pile up. It is a bit computery effects, but still something to behold. Very nasty. I've talked about Mike Flanagan's work many times before in this show. If you want episode numbers, I talked about The Haunting of Hill House in 222, The Haunting of Blind Manor and Midnight Mass in 413, and The Midnight Club in 459. I've also talked about the original sources that some of his work is based on too many times to mention, so I hope you're subscribed to my podcast so you can enjoy all that waffle. And that is The Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, it is worth a watch. Be sure that you're really into horror, though. (laughs) This isn't just a light allegory, it's proper horror. People die in a variety of fairly horrible and terrible and disgusting and painful ways, including acid and burning and chopping and cutting. And there's one uh, scene that I wouldn't say is original, because I've seen it done before, where Flanagan subverts the form of having a car and then having someone not land on it after they (laughs) fall out of a building. But I've seen that before in something else that has nothing to do with Flanagan. It was mildly amusing, it just wasn't that original. My god, I had to hit pause just to have a sip of drink. Oh, my god, I am tired today. Let's move on to another TV show, Invincible. After watching Rick and Morty for light relief, I know, what the hell's wrong with me? And immediately before watching The Fall of the House of Usher, and then... I watched Invincible. It was the third thing I watched in a series of heavy trips, and it was a heavy trip. I don't know how it worked out that way, but it did. And all this after an exhausting day traipsing about 10 kilometers around my city for shopping because we don't currently have a car. Uh, That was on the 15th last week. So I really put myself through the ringer. <laughs> a man, season two, episode one, which is the only episode I've seen so far, because I needed a break after that. We see Invincible teaming up with Omni-Man to murder, maim, and enslave the people of Earth. Only it's a parallel Earth. While our Invincible is still coming to terms with his father's betrayal. Eventually, our Invincible rejoins the post-massacre reformed Guardians of the Globe to fight the Mauler twins who are building a mind-melding machine for a beneficent dimension jumper. Well, beneficent at the moment until the machine works and he turns into a supervillain. The usual super science supervillain origin story. The battle ends with a victory for the Guardians, but at what cost? Well, I've kind of already said what the cost was. The Guardians of the Globe's new leader, the Immortal, is understandably deeply suspicious of Invincible after Cecil puts him in charge, because the Immortal has already been de-immortalised by Omni-Man, and then he comes back to life, luckily, for him. I think. I think he's killed. He is killed in season one, and he comes back, because he is the immortal. Invincible, as always, it is a Kirkman um, 
creation is great. But it is also, like everything Kirkman does, depressing. Even more so than other violent superhero dystopia shows like The Boys. And let's also compare it to Rick and Morty, whereas you can be simultaneously appalled and laugh at Rick and Morty, and be awestruck and laugh at The Fall of the House of Usher, both those are quite comedic. Intentionally, Invincible is engrossing to watch, but hard to take and wearing. However, one can't argue with a tone, because the central idea is that a mixed-race teenager discovers his father is a genocidal sociopathic space Nazi. Who wouldn't feel bad about that? And that's Invincible. Talking of genocidal, what a light topic this week. Doctor Who, Fires of Pompeii. Because of the mass slaughter that is happening in another part of the world, I no longer have the heart to directly comment on current affairs in the podcast anymore. Probably to most people's relief. Though re-watching this episode turned out to be cold comfort. I didn't watch it for that reason, but... Ah... Seeing the Doctor deciding to annihilate Pompeii in order to stop an extraterrestrial invasion struck a discordant chord. The 2008 episode was a bad choice for a rewatch. Good episode, bad choice right now. It also put the Doctor in a position at odds to the one he took against the Brigadier's genocidal campaign against the Silurians in Doctor Who and the Silurians in 1970, uh, refer to pod 182, why didn't the Doctor try harder to negotiate with the Pyroviles? It's the thing that he does. He negotiates. The third Doctor, John Pertwee, would have... All this is very heavy, but at least there is some light relief in the last scene, and that did make me chortle. One of the criticisms of New Who is that the Doctor is too omnipotent, too godlike. I think that criticism was already in the air, <laughs> even before this script was written. So perhaps that's a jibe at that. Because we see that to a middle-class Roman family, the Doctor literally has become a household god. There is a plaque of the Doctor with the TARDIS in the middle and Donna on the other side that is placed in their shrine. And they now honour him for saving them from the volcano. I thought that was a nice touch. A bit of levity at the end. Perhaps a bit of a tone shift, a sudden tone shift, too sudden, maybe. But it made me laugh. Unbelievable as it sounds, this podcast is not solely a Doctor Who podcast, but you could be forgiven for thinking that it is considering how much Doctor Who content there is today. But it is the build-up to the 60th, so there is a lot of stuff available and a lot of stuff to talk about. But rest assured, it's not solely about Doctor Who. The very last thing I watched before doing this show was Doctor Who Children in Need Special 2023. This is a six minutes and some seconds short, featuring the 10th or 14th Doctor, played by David Tennant, or whoever the hell he's supposed to be. These Children in Need specials are, as that title suggests, a way to promote the BBC's Children in Need 
charity drive. It came out on the 17th, but I've just got around to watching it now. In the story, the TARDIS materialises and immediately crashes full tilt into the side of a Khaled weapons laboratory. Then we watch a time paradox in action as the Doctor inadvertently names the Daleks, gives them their exterminate catchphrase, <laughs> lays an easter egg callback to Genesis of the Daleks, and replaces the damaged, murderous-looking claw-slash-captive bolt pistol limb thing with the far less sinister but iconic toilet plunger. It was comedic pantomime by design, as is the tradition for these short sketches for children in need. That's okay, I understand that. For adult pre-travel chair Davros, played by an actor called Julian Bleach, is a hammy villain. I don't know if he's played the original Davros at all. I'm not sure. And his lab assistant, Mr. Caster Villain, <laughs> see what I mean, was played by Mahwan Rizwan, played in a hilarious way. I thought his nervous enthusiasm was quite funny. I loved how the TARDIS lodged itself into the wall. I enjoyed the obvious but very funny time paradox silliness of it all. And that is Doctor Who Children in Need special 2023, six minutes or so long. Yeah, go and watch it. You probably already have watched it if you're a Whovian. Let me know what you thought. I thought it was quite nice. It didn't do anything overly silly like break the fourth wall. Fourth wall? Yeah, fourth wall. <laughs> okay, next. Some stuff about Doctor Who to talk about, but not review. First, Doctor Who, the Daleks in colour. The Beeb have told us to expect Doctor Who, the Daleks in colour. Not like Werewolf by Night in colour, reported in 510, which... I have a suspicion was originally filmed in colour, and then colour reduced the black and white. I could be wrong. But this is the other way round. To quote the BBC, the first Dalek story dazzlingly colourised and weaved into a 75-minute blockbuster. By weaved, they mean out of the original black and white seven-parter, which was a bit longer, from 1963. We can see this on Doctor Who Day on Thursday the 23rd of November, marking the 60th anniversary of the show live at 17.30 on BBC4, and no doubt on iPlayer after that. And now you know how I'll be spending Doctor Who Day. Oh, and by the way, I won't be reviewing it because I already have. I talked about the original The Daleks from 1963 back in Pod 34 from 2014, which would have been the first year that I started revisiting classic Doctor Who. And yeah, that's also a reason that it's worth subscribing to this podcast. As I always say, Tyler, oh God, I'm just sick of saying that. You know the whole thing. I'm not going to go through that rigmarole. Anyway, just a reminder, the first 2023 special is two days later. So mark that in your calendar. So there's more of David Tennant, even more. Next, Doctor Who, the missing episodes. In addition to the Daleks in colour, according to the Beeb, thanks to the ingenuity of the fans, 
sound recordings of these missing episodes survived and were returned to the BBC. Combined with narration from the stars of Doctor Who, here's a chance to listen to three adventures starring the first two Doctors. These stories are Marco Polo, which I talked about in Pod 35, Mission to the Unknown, Pod 48, The Daleks' Master Plan, Pod 50, and The Wheel in Space, Pod 126. Doctor Who The Missing Episodes are available on BBC Sounds, the website and the app now. And they have been for a few days. Here's even more updates about the Hooniverse. As reported in pods 488, 505, 509, 510, and possibly in all of my pods until the end of time, here's an update on November the 1st, Big upload of the classic series of Doctor Who and other Who-related material to BBC iPlayer. Oh, my voice is cracking a bit there, sorry. I also remember the BBC saying that documents about the series would be uploaded to their website. Though I know nothing of that yet, I can tell you that many of the scripts and production documents are already there, and have been there for years. We talked about this before. If you dig, you can find even more on clearly forgotten parts of the BBC website. You know that it's a forgotten part of the site because it says this page has been archived and it's full of broken images, but some of them still have valid hyperlinks to PDF documents. We talked about some of those documents before, and we've talked about the scripts. Let me just end by saying there's enough stuff to last fans for many years to come, and if the show ever goes belly up again, we have all this material. Well, in theory we have all this material, providing that the BBC don't take a page out of the streamer's playbook, change their minds and pull everything in the future which is entirely possible. I don't put it past any large company to stick up a paywall. Well, there kind of is a paywall because we play a TV license in the UK. So if you're watching iPlayer through a VPN and somehow can do that from another country, then just bear in mind that we're paying for that. Again, if you need... An excuse to jump into my classic Doctor Who revisit, started in 2014, this is it, as I've been saying for weeks now. Okay, next, Hammer House of Horror. Uh, Not a review, just a reminder that this is another reason to subscribe, and that is to catch up with my new revisit show started over Halloween, in which I take you back to the delightfully trashy thrills of the 1980s TV horror show, Hammer House of Horror. An iconic cult piece of British television history. Oh, blimey, I do need to sit down for a moment. Excuse me. And that is it for science fiction, fantasy and horror this week. In my off-topic section today... There is only one topic, and that is my latest London walk. Let me tell you about that. To avoid the Armistice Day crowds, my club skipped a week for their meeting in a bar in the city. I am glad that they did that, because I missed the chaos caused by neo-Nazis in central London on the 11th of November, thanks to the ex-Home Secretary's recent empowerment of them. I am embarrassed that someone with a similar background to my own can be so toxic, 
but human nature being what it is, I'm sadly not at all surprised. Of course, to console her in her uh, moment of need, <laughs> I sent her my signature whiny violin, cropped from a medieval Italian mural, sourced on Wikipedia, in response to her equally whiny, probably even more whiny, letter to the Prime Minister. In conclusion, good riddance. But back to London. Politics aside, my delayed club meeting was rescheduled for the 18th, and that meant another day of walking around London. The long walks, as I found out three days earlier, are taking their toll. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but decrepit old git that I am, Google Fit tells me I'm blasting those wimpy couch to 5Kers right out of the water. Oh, what did I do on that day? Well, yeah, there were a lot of police around. <laughs> I'll talk about that in a second. But I also uh, did the usual walk from Euston to Embankment, passing down Tottenham Court Road and... Is it Shaftesbury Avenue? Anyway. I took a side trip this time to visit Rose Morris, a guitar shop on Denmark Street, where I bought my first bass guitar. I still have it. If you go back through my Twitter media feed quite a long way, you'll find it. It's a red uh, Marlin Sidewinder. It's not the greatest guitar in the world, and it weighs a ton. And I never learned to play it. <laughs> Instead, I took up the banjolele. Oh, where was I? Oh, yeah, police. Yeah, there were a lot of police on Saturday. They were out-of-town coppers from the West Midlands, Staffordshire, Yorkshire and Wales, milling about somewhat nervously because it's not their turf. I know they were from there because they had their regional police force badges on their vehicles. I don't know why they were there, though. There are various reasons that central London was so heavily policed that day. I haven't found anything definitive, though. I don't know whether it was in expectation of more protesters, counter-protesters... Looting announced, apparently, on social media? I don't know what it was. I do know, though, that they were around. A lot of them. I mean, they didn't really interfere with anyone, but they did not look very calm. They looked a bit on edge. It was very, very crowded. Far more crowded than usual. I don't know if it was something to do with Christmas shopping, perhaps, or people just going into London towards Christmas. I mean, it's not Christmas yet. We've got at least a month. Oh yeah, apart from that, my day did go smoothly. The radar key that I have for IBS came in handy in finding a toilet while waiting far too long for some cubicles to free up. Yeah, I was just waiting and waiting, and then I walked away looking for an exit, and I came across this radar toilet. I thought, yeah, why not use the key? There's no one else waiting to use it. I was in and out as quick as I could, so I wouldn't be taking up time for someone who really needed it desperately and was perhaps physically disabled, but there was no one around. I quickly used it and left, and yeah, that was great. It's the second time I've used the key. <laughs> this big brass key. The key of destiny! I also found out, at last, I think I found out anyway, what those weird doors are that are set into the walls of Trafalgar Square. 
I mentioned this in a previous podcast, so I'm just curious as to what they are. If you go to Trafalgar Square, and you go up to one of the fountains, and you turn around from the fountain, facing the gallery, there are these large doors set into the wall. They're very mysterious. When I asked the passing cleaner what they were, he told me they were toilets for staff, for cleaners. I don't know about that. Toilets? I've seen cleaners pushing their big cleaning carts into there. Which is a little odd. It's not as if someone would steal them, would they? If they were left outside? It's dubious and fishy. If that's what the doors lead to, then fair enough. I'm not so sure, so if you know what the mysterious doors I'm talking about actually are, please let me know. Being a Hoovian, of course, there is something TARDIS-like about their inside volume. You know, I don't really understand. I don't know. (laughs) People shoving great carts into there and then disappearing. (laughs) Oh my god, it's a TARDIS. Oh, that's how the cleaners take their tea break. They go in there and dematerialize and go somewhere nice for a break. Somewhere where it's sunny and they serve nice hot coffee or a couple of cocktails and they come back and do the rest of their shift. Wouldn't that be nice? And that is it for the show. After show. Like the Mission Impossible films. The show will go on. The show must go on. The show will go on forever. So far, it's been 11 years and counting. Though, by the state of my feet, it will probably only last a minute longer. Now I have to stop again because there's another bloody vehicle... Listen to that. Up yours, you noisy bastard. (sighs) This is why I have the thingy set to explicit, the tag thingy in my podcast feed XML. I wish I could change that. You know, if I had an environment where it wasn't so noisy, maybe I could do clean shows. But until then, that's it for the show. The show is produced, presented, and edited by me, Roy Matur, a grumpy writer and perhaps a wizard. Matur is spelt M-A-T-H-U-R. You can find more about me or get in touch at roymatur.com if you want to help. Please review and rate the show on whatever platform you listen, recommend it to a friend or mortal enemy, or click on the contact or support link on the website. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Captain Roy's Rusty Rocket Radio Show, the UK geek science fiction fantasy and horror podcast, episode 511, taped on Monday the 20th of November, but ending on Tuesday the 21st of November 2023 at 01-24-44. As ever. Thank you sincerely for listening, and bye-bye for now. Bye! And also, you know, enjoy Doctor Who Day. Oh, it's going to be great. And the Doctor Who 2023 specials two days later. Oh my god. Okay, I've got to go now. Bye!